it's weird. I think as humans, we tend to focus more on negatives because that's where the dangers are. That's where there's risk and there's fear. Um, so it's better to be like alert. And so that creates inherent negativity. When you relax, you start to realize what's beautiful and what's right and what's okay. So then you can actually start to be positive. And for me, when I'm writing songs and music, I'm being cathartic. I'm putting down all of my feelings and songs because I can't really express it as a, as a human being. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. From across the pond comes today's guest, alternative singer-songwriter Billy Nomad. Bill describes how writing music and performing every day makes him feel young again. And I hope the listener gathers from our conversation that Bill's childhood was atypical. Bill was an autistic child who passed as more or less quote-unquote normal. Music became a middle ground in his adolescence, and we'll have a chance to hear a few of his tracks while we speak. It isn't just his accent that put a smile on my face, but some of his insights on curiosity, creativity, and mental health. Bill brings an authentic voice and story that I hope you will also recognize as you listen to his music. The lyrics are often healing and direct. He speaks of suicide and darkness, using music to cope and escape horrendous bullying and mitigate emotional burnout. We'll hear as much as Bill can express today, but I invite you to listen to his music because it is there where he says what he wants in any way he wants without the stress that usually comes from socially interacting with people. Let's jump in and meet Billy Nomad. Hey everyone, yep, it's me again, your host Tom. I have a quick favor to ask of you. Will you help me shape the future of this podcast? It would mean so much to me if you would fill out a short and simple five-question survey and let me know your thoughts on the podcast thus far and on the direction of future episodes. Just click the link in the show notes and fill out the short questionnaire. Your information will be kept completely private and your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. Bill, hey, how are you today? Tom, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Good. I'd say good morning, but it's not morning there. No, it's uh, 3.23 p.m. Uh, what time is it there? I'm in Austin, Texas, so it is 9.23 a.m. It was you. You went on my website this morning, didn't you? I did. Uh, I did. Yeah, see, I saw it <laughs> pop up in my analytics. It was like Austin, Texas. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I've hit the States. Yes, you, yes, you caught me red-handed. No, well, yeah, no, I'm, oh. I'm okay today. It was a really sunny day here. As it's getting into the afternoon, it's kind of going a bit grey and dismal. But otherwise, I'm recording a new project today, so I'm, I'm having a good time. I don't know. It looks questionable. Are you sure that's sunny? That looks a little, <laughs> little, gr- still looks a little grey over there. It's sunny for UK standards. And I, I was saying this when I was recording uh, a few weeks ago. You know, there's a real storm blowing outside, but not a real storm like a UK storm. 
because we don't ever have really sunny days and we don't ever have really stormy days either. It's, it, when we do, it's like we freak out. The whole country shuts down. Yeah. So my last name is Hartridge. So obviously my people are originally from, from the UK. Where you're from. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of my family comes from Kent. Oh, yeah. I've got a yeah, friend over in Kent. Do you? Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So there's actually like three or four Tom Hartridges. So uh, if, nice. if they ever listen, tell them I'd like my name back. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I'll hold them up. Yeah, actually, there is one other Billy Nomad in the world uh, who came before me, but unfortunately uh, didn't didn't make it um, to this point, has unfortunately passed away. So if you go to billynomad.com, that's actually a ceremonial page for uh, the original Billy Nomad. And okay. Um, I, I didn't know them. I didn't realize that until about four years into me doing it. And now there's been a couple of other Billy Nomads pop up, but then they, they don't seem to get very far. They like put a profile picture up, add a couple of videos on, on whatever they're doing, and they go, oh, no, there's this guy. There's this guy. Okay, I'll stop that. Might change the name. So why, I want to, reading your bio, you said you're, you're British, Irish artist. Who's Irish in your family? Uh, my dad's side is Irish, but then also there's some Irish on my mum's side as well. So I'm actually mostly Irish as I, as I see it. Yeah, yeah so I, my, my family is mostly, entirely, I'm derived. What you see genetically is from the entire aisle. So I've got a little bit of Welsh as well. Oh, nice. You're, you're a UK person who, who might uh, Yeah, people. I'm uh, Scotch-Irish and English. So, so um, who, was that on my your mom? mom? My, my mother, uh, she passed away last year, but her maiden name was uh, McIntyre. Oh, bless you. Oh, no, a few McIntyres. I wonder if they're related. How is it spelled, though? Is uh, it M-A-C. And there's the no Y in it as well. Yeah, see, we're the I. We're the big I. Ah, MC, okay, big I. Yeah, yeah, probably not the same. <laughs> there, there's so many variations of McIntyre, you know? Yeah, there's a few uh, There's a few nomads about, but yeah, none of them relate to me, unfortunately. I'm the only one. Um, So before we started recording, you said you were working on – tell me what you're working on right now. Uh, I've got a few things going on, actually, because I'm working on a project called New Old Stock – this t-shirt was proudly made by Ian Kidley. Um, so I'm working on that, which is basically taking uh, some of my old songs and reviewing them, making them better, recording them better, and putting music videos together for them. And at the same time as that, I'm getting together with my band on Sunday to talk about the next album we're recording, which will be in the summer. And that's called To All Things Under Dow, which I'm really looking forward to. It's all written. It's all put together. It just needs to be recorded live by the band. Um, and then also I'm developing my record label, which is called Pretty Sound Records. And this year we're putting together our business plans so that next year we can launch it officially. And, right. and I'm also in a couple of other bands. One of them is the Bread and Dripping Experience and all sorts of other things. But I'm very, very, very busy all the time. But this right here, New Old Stock, is the project to go and look at. And yeah. there's a website, which if you go to my Instagram, which is at the Billy Nomad, you can help me alpha okay. test the website by like clicking on the link in the bio. So that's really exciting. And you've been on it today, Tom. I've sampled and listened to a few of your songs. What genre would you say you fall under? Uh, eclectic, I'd say, but then it's usually alternative pop and rock. So I used to lovingly call it anti-pop, but really it's kind of... 
it's that sound from Cindy Lauper girls just want to have fun um where it's like kind of serious-ish lyrics you know it's got a bit of commentary to it um but then the music's kind of happy chirpy and when I do dark songs I do very dark songs and they tend to be more in the line of talking about more serious social commentary issues like religion and uh you know politics and things like that and they tend to be a lot darker so I'd like to say I'm a bit eclectic but it's all over yeah. the place there's actually one of the tracks we were talking about earlier was the Rise Bailey Rise remix of Should I or Shouldn't I and that I is, dig that. I dig that track, man. That's awesome, right? And that started as like a, a folk rock track that I uh, wrote when I was staying in a hotel in Blackpool years and years and years ago. I don't know if you know Blackpool. It's one of these seaside towns in the UK. I don't, but <laughs> is it a pretty town? It used to be. It used to be one of those go-to seaside towns. I think it's got a lot of potential still, and I love going there still. Um, but it's one of those cities uh, where that's the colour of the sky is the same grey as the colour of the sea, so you can't actually see the difference between them. And at There's the top, no differentiation? Like you, <laughs> no, really... you literally cannot <laughs> see the horizon. There is no horizon. It's just grey all the way. Um, and so I wrote a couple of songs while I was down there. One of them was Spring Rain, which was about that and all of the different things that I saw and smelt and, you know, in Blackpool. But the other one was this song, Should I or Shouldn't I? And it was really written about the fact I was having doubts about the relationship I was in at the time. And I wanted to process that and actually talk about what is love, you know. Um, It was kind of meant to be more of an epic anthem in the chorus. And that's developed so much over the last, oh, I don't even know, seven years now. But it's gotten to the point where my friend Rise Baby Rise saw it and went, I want to remix that. Can you send me everything you can from the song and I'll, I'll see what I can do. And you hear it, it's absolutely mind-blowing it takes the song and it puts on a completely different level uh, i love listening to it i think i'm overthinking it favorite thus far that i really dig that song you'll man. probably like my other project which is called coda rushing and it's more electronic trancey um and uh, the last record we put together was called welcome to the struggle and it was with me and my friend mitchell taylor who is a bard i don't know if you know what a bard is uh, it's uh it's kind of like an unofficial um artistic representative of a town or an area or a county and okay. he was the bard of Northampton and he was the bard of Stony Stratford. So a really well uh, accredited poet. And he talks about social politics and things like that. So when I came to recording this EP, he was the first person I thought of. I was like, Mitch, let's do this EP. And so you'll love that. You really will love that, Tom. That's called Welcome to the Struggle by Coda Russian. Um, so if you yeah, like I the just wrote it down. Right, I'm definitely going to check nice it out. One, man. Awesome. And that's the thing. A lot of what I do with music is I, I do everything. And Billy Nomad really fits into this realm of real instruments, um, folky, poppy, alternative. 
Um, but then Code Russian's electronic experimental, um, and I just love that. That's a, that's a lot of fun. Billy Nomad's like uh, my my most prominent form, and I live as Billy Nomad. But when I go into Code Russian mode, I do absolutely lose my mind with it, and I love it. Yeah, I'm look, I can't wait to check it out. You'll have to send me the link so we can will, share right. some of that as well. I'll put it in the show notes. Excellent. Uh, um, so tell me, how old were you when you started playing music? I was probably about 13, I reckon, when I started playing drums because that's when I could really start for uh, getting drum lessons through the school with my parents. It was like £50 a term, and I used to get like 15-minute drum lessons, but I mostly taught myself from this book. So by the time I was 15, I'd kind of gotten quite accomplished with the drums, and my dad had been asking me for years, do you want me to teach you guitar, do you want me to teach you guitar? And I'd kind of gone, no, I'm a drummer, leave me alone. And then eventually gone, yeah, okay, fair enough, I actually, I want to write songs now. I'd been writing a lot of poetry, um, and kind of working with my sister to write songs with her, and I wanted to do it myself. So I was like, okay, like teach me guitar, and I learned a few chords. So by 15, 16, I was writing songs every day, sometimes two or three a day, and then it got to probably when I was about 17, 18, I started to look into the music industry, and so by the time I was 18, I was like, I want a record deal. I want someone who's going to pay me to just sit around and make records every day. Um and then really, I did that for two or three years, and then I almost completely gave up on it. I realised I needed investment, I needed capital, so I got a day job, got several day jobs, which didn't last very long because I'm high-functioning autistic. I don't work well in those sorts of environments. So, um, yeah, eventually I found my way back to being self-employed in about 2015. Yeah, about 2015, 2014, 2015. Um, and... Yeah, got back into music full time, and it was a dream come true because I, I think growing up a bit, um, seeing what the actual job was, and not worrying too much about what the industry was doing, yeah, you know, it definitely helped me just do what I wanted to do. And people are really flocking to it now, which is, which is, I think, the best part because a lot of the time when I was putting in loads of effort before, it'd be like uh, pissing in the wind, for lack of a better term. Whereas <laughs> yeah, now, no, that's the perfect term. <laughs> I'm, I'm all in favor of that one. Pissing in the wind. I use that one. Uh, <laughs> So do you think your dad pushed you towards the guitar because you were making a racket too much with the drums? <laughs> He's actually, he used to sit me down from the age of about five or six and go, right, we're going to learn guitar. And he used to do my, <laughs> my mum work nights. And so he'd get me, my brother and my sister and sit us down and he'd sit there with his acoustic guitar. And he'd go, right, I'm going to show you a few things on the guitar now. And so my sister's about three years older than me, so she's eight when he started doing this. And he'd be like, right, I'm going to play some chords. So I probably got to the point where I was about 11, where I'd gone, Dad, I really don't want to learn guitar. And my brother and my sister had both picked it up, so he kind of like honed in on them for a while. And it was a couple of years before I really went, Dad, can you please pay for me to learn drums instead? So I think for him, it was just kind of like a thing for us to do together in the evenings when my mum was at work. It's never he pushed us to it, but it was always really encouraging. It was kind of like we used to love sitting and listening to him play. So when it was a matter of him going, here you go, I'm going to play for you, but I'm also going to teach you at the same time. It was like, great. What a great dad. Yeah. So my, my listeners are probably going to be like, will he ever shut up about this? But one of my running jokes is uh, <laughs> so my dad, my dad was a lawyer, but one of the worst things, quote unquote, he ever did was uh, he took my drum kit when I was 15. No way. <laughs> oh man. Because yeah, I was making racket down there uh, in the basement. 
but um yeah they, yeah, they tried you, everything they tried practice pads with me and then they said well you can only do it for like two hours in the evening because i was doing it six hours a day at one point like bunking off the school to do it and yeah yeah so you know how it goes i mean i would put on led zeppelin and just <laughs> make racket and pretend i'm john bonham i, I know i wasn't but <laughs> it was still yeah. a lot of fun and I enjoyed it. I loved Keith Moon and Ringo Starr. They were the two that I listened to. I go, oh, I want to do that now. Because like Keith Moon had this weird like tribal thing about him where it would be like, he yeah, was- man. So Ginger Baker, if oh, we're gonna if we're gonna riff, like, like might as well throw out some top five. Go on. And then John Bonham, who, and then for me, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl is fantastic, and I actually argued once that I was better than him because I used to be an egomaniac. Uh, really? Yeah, I remember being like, I I learned a couple of like really complicated things like poly rhythms, and and so I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm the best now. And I'd seen Dave Grohl play a few things with Nirvana, you know, and someone started arguing with me online like, well, you're not better than Dave Grohl, and I'm like, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of how I came up with the title of this podcast. Nirvana was. I'm very proud. I've said this again. My listeners are probably going to roll their eyes, but my dad gave me 20 bucks, and uh, that was the first CD I ever bought. Oh, nice. Like, yes. Uh, so I love Nirvana. And, That's a good uh, Dave choice. Grohl, yeah, Dave Grohl is What album was it? Huh? What Never mind. Nice. Never mind. So, yeah, not, 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 yeah, not Bleach, or, but never mind. Yeah, my, my first one was uh, Demon Days by Gorillaz. I went out and it was just something about the cover, the cartoon characters and the sound. When I got home, I was like, wow, these are cool. Yeah, they're sick. Yeah. There's some great beats on that one. So some of the things I come across, you've got your hands kind of a lot of things. You Are you working in, did I read correctly, you've got a film? Oh, yeah. So what I'm doing is basically filming everything I'm doing this year. Luckily, I'm not filming this. Don't worry. Um, You're filming You can film it. I don't care. (laughs) Well, this is Dog. This is Dog, and and Dog is basically my lifelong companion. Um, And he constantly follows me around and films everything I do. I try not to take him everywhere now. I've kind of taken a bit of a break from him over the last couple of weeks because it was like everywhere I went, I had my camera in people's faces, you know. So Were they they getting pissed? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) You could kind of see people clam up a little bit. Like there's this little bit of stress that goes on when they know they're being filmed. I was like, nah, it's all right. going to edit out anything that makes you look dumb or makes you look, you know. I wouldn't put anything in that makes you look... um, And if I... I'd kind of got it in my head if when we're eventually making the film, if there's anything they don't like, I'll show it to them first, the whole film, and go, right, is there anything there you don't like you want us to take out, you know? Um, so, yeah, the, the, the film at the end of the year is going to be a documentary made up of me on this project, recording the album, working with a record label, doing all these different things, uh, but basically just developing myself again this year. Uh, and it will be a companion to the album. So it will be a film called To All Things Under Down. Uh, it'll so, be in conjunction with it. Yeah. So the album, I'm hoping, here's the plan so far, it will be on vinyl, it will be on cassette, and it will be on CD. It will also come with a companion film. There will be a line of merchandise that comes with that as well. Um, and that will all be essentially crowdfunded at the time or... Uh, the record label if it's still doing really well because we got 80,000 streams this month. Um, but if it's, awesome. 
I know, right? I, honestly, like, I'm on disability benefits at the moment. And one of my biggest fears is like, am I going to be able to afford coming off of them? I've got a review coming up next year. And obviously, as my mental health improves, they're going to be less likely to say, yeah, we'll keep on paying for you to survive. So, you know, it'll get to the point next year where I'm a bit worried, like, will I be able to afford it? And it's this months like this, I kind of go, ah, oh, everything's going to be all right in the long run, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's sort of, if everything's still going right with the record label, I think it's going to be uh, funded partly by that, um, partly by crowdfunding, partly by busking campaigns and live gigs and all sorts. But it will get funded and we'll have all of those things hopefully eventually by about December. So it'll be ready in time for Christmas. Perfect. Yeah. So you think you'll be able to get it done by the end of the year? Well, like, I wanted to get it done by July 1st. July 1st was supposed to be the launch show for the release of the album, right? Um, right. But then Mitchell, who uh, I was talking about earlier, he basically is my main like frontman companion in the band. He plays all the electric rhythm guitar, and he does okay. all the shouting vocal behind me. He sings very similar to me. So he really pads out my vocals and stuff. And he's right. going in to have like serious knee surgery next week. So he's going to be out of action for about six to eight weeks before he can walk, then physiotherapy, and then he's going to have to like, you know, learn, learn how to play the song. So we went, right, July 1st is actually going to be a launch show where we uh, get the band together and play all of the songs, and then we'll go into the studio and we'll start recording it for the next few weeks. So I reckon, yeah, I reckon by the end of the year, without a doubt, Hopefully his recovery is quick. I'm going to throw myself under the bus. So I started doing Orange Theory, which is like a exercise. I was doing it pretty hardcore. I like to do things outdoors, like hike and so forth. Yeah. They put me on a treadmill, ran three miles. There were two guys on each side and they, they were like buff bagwells, clearly exercise a lot. And I'm competitive. <laughs> so they're like, Increase your incline by three per, uh, uh, 10%. So I'm on a three incline at eight out of 10 on the treadmill or whatever. And mind you, I hadn't run a 5K in like six years for a nonprofit. <laughs> the next, I thing I know, I'm, next thing I know, I'm getting an x ray and they put me in a boot. I'm not wearing it today, but I was like in a boot for a few days. And this, that was when I said to myself, Oh my God, I'm, I'm really 42 years old. Holy shit. I'm 42. This is like proof. I'm 42. I went to the doctors with like, uh, when I was about 26 and he said, you seem to have something wrong with you. It might be like early onset rheumatism. Don't run. Like, no running anymore. And I was kind of like, that's a, that's a relief. I don't feel any pressure to run or move quickly anymore. I just sort of stride around like some sort of emperor. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I like to swim. That's probably my favorite form of exercise. I haven't been able to do that in so long. There's, there's not really a swimming pool around here I can use. So you touched upon it briefly. Let's talk about your Asperger's, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, sure. How that's affected you and in your life and in the work environment. So for me, ADHD, I can't sit still. Fortunately, almost all of my, after I graduated from the University of Georgia, all of my jobs were in sales and mostly they were outside sales. Right. So I got to at least get away from the desk for a little yeah. while. But God, oh, thank God, you know, cause I was constantly in movement or bugging the hell out of people in my office because 
chatting away and, and so forth. I love to talk to people. I can't sit in a cubicle. It's like my worst nightmare, man. So how, in, in relation for you, like, how does that work? It's funny that you say that because, yeah, it did get to the, the last job I had. And that's when I think some of the complex PTSD that I, I'm suffering with at the moment started to really manifest. Um, sorry, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm smiling. It's a massive coping mechanism that I have. No, smile away, so, dude. <laughs> laugh. I, so I laugh as a coping mechanism. Yeah, Sometimes it makes sense, right? When it's not... When it's not appropriate. Yeah, I get told off so I ner- much. For- I nervously laugh uh, when I'm like uncomfortable. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, no worries. I got, um, so my folks basically said to me when I was about 13, 14, we think you're autistic, have a look at House, you know, watch House. You know, see see that character because Hugh Laurie apparently plays an incredible autistic person. I, I agree in some ways, definitely fits the mold. Um, but yeah, a lot of my uh, autism kind of manifested as I got older, what's known as maladaptive behavior. So if something scares me, something stresses me out or breeds anxiety, I just avoid it like mad. And what stresses me out and, you know, gets me anxious tends to be a lot of people that I don't know, you know, having to repeat the same task over and over and over again without a prescribed like end point where I'm like, okay, I can stop doing that now and relax. So a lot of the jobs I had in admin were killer, man. Uh, it was like doing the same lines of code every single day. And it just drove me nuts. Um, but I tried to do everything, really. I worked in warehouses mostly to start with. Uh, then I worked in a few offices. I worked as a chef. Um, what else did I do? All sorts. I worked in a canning factory for Coca-Cola. Uh, did you? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the best because you just got as much free Coke and like energy yeah, as much I, as you wanted. I'm from Georgia, so you know Coca-Cola is originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I've still, I shouldn't say this because it's probably illegal. Uh, I didn't mean to steal it, but I've still got my original Coca-Cola Enterprises bowling shirt because I used to make us wear bowling shirts in the in the plant. And it's oh, cool oh, are you plastic. serious? Yeah, man. I don't know where it is. It's probably <laughs> in the bag of clothes that's in the bottom of my wardrobe. I don't think you'll get in trouble. And I hope not. It's not like they're going to come after me for like a. What, I don't a think anybody listening, shirt. any of the listeners, will rat you out either. I hope I think not. You're good. I think you're good. Nobody will do that. <laughs> but yeah, I try I try to do everything basically. I was like, okay, well obviously everyone else can do it, everyone else can work, everyone else can engage with this as a lifestyle. I didn't really realise what maladaptive behaviour was, so I just carried on. I didn't get diagnosed with autism, bear in mind, although my parents had said it to me. Neither I nor them went, Oh well, we should get this diagnosed and see how we can manage it. So no shame on them, they had a lot to, to cope with and I wasn't really thinking in that way when I was a child. So, so yeah, it just got to the point where I started working in marketing for one of the biggest retail companies in this country and mm-hmm. working in that because I have quite a pronounced uh, political opinion and spiritual opinion and things like that. It really didn't sit right with me morally, a lot of the things that were going along and a lot of the things I was being asked to do. So we started having these horrible invasive suicidal thoughts I started getting emotionally unstable. I started avoiding it, going in earlier, uh, sorry, later, leaving earlier, like bringing my laptop home and insisting that I work from home. Uh, but just really like doing anything I could to avoid the work. And I think within about three months, they went, oh, that's enough now. Um, so they weren't very accommodating? 
they didn't eventually. really understand, they really didn't understand it and neither did I as far as they was aware when I started I was really inspired I was getting more work done than everyone else I was doing six weeks worth of work in two weeks you know I was like really killing it um, and it got to the point where I couldn't really handle it emotionally anymore. So I just started to break down at work and I started to have all these issues where I couldn't engage with the work I was doing. So I was avoiding it and it became really horrible. It really did. Um, and that's really when I decided I was already still working in music at that point, self-employed. And I went, no, no more corporate work for me. And I became a music teacher. And I did that for probably the best part of two years. Uh, and with that, I just did very short hours on contract to a, to a franchise. So they could basically set me up with these workshops and they'd go, we'll pay you. can't remember how much it was. I think it was like £15 an hour. So, yeah, it's uh, like freelance. Yeah. So it's just easy work. What age were the kids that you were teaching? So we were teaching from, I think it was 7 to 11s, and then from 11s to 18s, uh, 12 to 18s. Okay. And then okay. it was we were teaching 18-plus classes as well, and they were probably some of the best with the 18-plus classes. Some of the younger kids, 7 to 11, they were only there because their parents wanted to pay for them to be out of the house doing anything at all. So it, <laughs> What's that? You like music? Okay, off you go. Go to this, like, serious music club. So... <laughs> Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, this, that that's the silver lining. The one, I always say one of the silver linings, if not the only from the pandemic, COVID, yeah. is that the work has changed. So people have now realized it doesn't really necessarily matter where you are, because as long as you're productive, you do not have to sit in an office. No, absolutely Companies are changing and now allowing here in America where employees can at least work at home three to four days a week and only have to come in like for company meetings and so forth. And the difference uh, that that will make to just neurodivergent people is insane because the amount I know, of people right? I know that are like I just can't go in and work in an office. Yeah. Oh yeah, I sit at home for four hours a day and do copyright, no worries. Yeah. But if you can't do your thing and people are distracting the hell out of you, Ooh. you know, people would be offended when I would shut my office door because I, on sales calls, would I like to stand up and pace. It helps me keep my rhythm and Emotion cadence. creates emotion, man. Right, right. And so I would, it helps me stay focused when I'm, when particularly if it were somebody that I didn't have a rapport with. And it's just somebody who didn't know me from Adam and I'm trying to build a report. I would stay hyper-focused. Yes. Uh, And so the motion would help me. um, Did that used to burn you out though? Did you used to get burnt out from being in that state where you're kind of hyper-focused? I usually associate that with stress now. Well, yeah. So ADHD and anxiety, um, I'm, I'm not going to say they come fully hand in hand, but they're very common. I have general anxiety. I guess if disorder. it's not managed properly, then yeah, it will create stuff like general anxiety disorders. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And then also another unfortunate byproduct uh, for a lot of creative people and people with ADHD is depression. Yes. I, I mean, that was one of the worst things going into this pandemic is I had to give up teaching. 
and it was the only thing that I'd done for a while that I'd been like, oh, I can do this. I can be a normal person, you know. Um, right. And then, yeah, the pandemic happened, all the schools shut down, all the, the franchise basically locked its doors and halved its staff, and it was like, oh, no. And then finding myself on the outside of that, and my mental health just plummeted so badly. It was, like, it was insane. I, I, I was waking up most days and just kind of staring at myself in the mirror and then going, yeah, no, I think I'll go back to bed. Uh, there's no point in me being awake sleeping sleeping was a coping mechanism yeah it really was and it wasn't until i started to read like Tao Te Ching, sort of like this this spiritual uh handbook it's like it's actually more like 81 poems it wasn't until i started reading that i was kind of like uh they change the mindset and things don't start to seem like they don't seem so bad anymore you know they actually make a little bit more sense a little bit more control is given back to me and so and what control i don't have is taken off of me at last i don't have to feel like i have to control everything and that was one thing that my psychiatrist had talked to me about about the autism is that i'd gotten into this space where i was constantly trying to control everything and, and i mean everything like the the responses i was getting from people if, if i wasn't happy with that i'd be like oh no yeah so it's um it's good to finally take a step back from everything, read this book and kind of go, ah, and relax. Because I haven't done it in so long. Uh, I remember (laughs) sitting on a bus once, sitting on a bus and I was like on my phone, I think. I think my battery on my phone had died. So I was like sitting with it in my pocket. And I was like looking out the window and for the first time in years, I actually relaxed. It's like all the stress went out of me all of a sudden and I, it created a panic attack. I ended up having a panic attack on the bus. Yeah, because really? yeah, the, just the sudden feeling of like, I'm relaxed. I was going like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> like, that was so funny. And it was like, I started to sweat then. And I started to be like, oh my God, what's happening? Yeah, and you were on, really when you were on the bus, is that when that was happening? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I usually on a bus and I just kind of sit there with my head on my head like, oh, okay, no, it'll be all right in a minute. It could have been maybe you were trying to meditate. For me, I, I have trouble meditating because my mind is racing all the time. Uh, yeah. And I'm thinking of like two or three things at the same time. Um, maybe I tend to what use- about with sounds? How does that affect you? Like... I tend to use like a sort of form of reflective meditation, which is listening okay. listening to music, relaxing using breathing exercises, corrective posture, so like sitting in a nice way. Um, and right. then actually there's there's a term that's used by a couple of different spiritual practitioners, which is watching the traffic go by or watching the clouds go by. And that's what you do. You're fully aware that your mind is erratic and all over the place. And I get that a lot. I get the, the million thoughts a second. Yet if someone says to me, what are you thinking then? If there's so much going on in your head, I actually can't answer them. I don't know. It just feels like there's all this consciousness going on. And actually when I try and hone in on it, I'm like, no, actually it's pretty calm in there. Uh, so it's, right. um, but yeah, the, the, that form of reflective meditation really helps because then I can kind of look at those thoughts as they go past and go, how do I feel about that? And if it starts to get negative, I just go, no, and relax and don't worry and learn to diffuse something I learned in talking therapy last year is like this thing called diffusion, which is being aware that an emotion is happening and being able to not get hooked on it, not get like latched onto it and focus on it, but actually being able to go, no, take a step back. That doesn't matter. You know, and using right. things like breathing exercises to just go, that doesn't actually matter. You know, so and that, you, you're finding that helpful. 
Yeah, yeah. I, when I can do it, the problem is my room is becoming so messy because I've got all these musical instruments everywhere. <laughs> there's like there's forty of them now, forty. You know, so uh, yeah, yeah. I don't have a space on the floor up here to to sit down and meditate. So the, there's a communal kitchen and living room downstairs. So I'm probably just going to start sitting down there. My housemates right. come in and be like, "This guy's just sitting on the floor in the, in, in the lounge. <laughs> What's going on?" But yeah, I'm gonna to have to start doing that soon. But yeah, I try to sort of like um, once a day if I can, um, which I tend to do in the garden in the spring and summer. Um, but yeah, in the winter, I, I, I might do it sort of once or twice a week if I'm lucky. Right. The sun helps, of course. Sun yeah. rays. Yeah, one of the new songs from the new album is called Hello Sun. And the, yes. it starts off really dark, like one of my usual dark songs. It's like, there are those that'll drive you blind. There are those who... St-. And it goes into like all these people that are really nasty, but then it goes into the chorus and it's so bright. And the, the, the hook line is, say hello to the... Uh, say goodbye to the dark and say hello, sun. And right, it's just like, right. it's really weird for me to write a song that's so positive and so shifts towards the positive rather than shifting towards the negative. It's like, it's great. And I really that song why do you think that's strange to you to do that to go from that to positive it's weird i think as humans we tend to focus more on negatives because that's where the dangers are that's where there's risk and there's fear um so it's better to be like alert and so that creates inherent negativity when you relax you start to realize what's beautiful and what's right and what's okay so then you can actually start to be positive um and for me when I'm writing songs and music, I'm being cathartic. I'm putting down all of my feelings in songs because I can't really express it as a, as a human being. Um, so with me, because humans usually focus on negative things, the negative things end up being the ones that go into the songs. You know, uh, when I want to express something happy, I just do it as a person and I don't really focus on it for very long. So, but with this album, I was like, no, I want to have some actually happy songs. Yeah, I mean, some of the best songs ever written were about heart, you know, being heartbroken. Or, oh, and, some of my best and, songs and, are so and, and breakups, right? Yeah, man. Like, one of the songs that's really popular at the moment is called Give Me Some Space, and it's me basically going, I don't want to do music anymore, I just want to die. And yet people are like, oh, no, I love that one. And the other <laughs> one is called Feed Me to the Mold, and that is literally, that was almost a suicide note, suicide note of mine when I was oh, 19. Oh, my God, it was. And like, but people love it. Whenever I play that play live, people are like, you have to do Feed Me to the Mold. And I sometimes turn around to them and go, you realize that's a very depressing song. And they're like, I don't care. Yeah. I love it. Play it. And it's like, all right, yeah, fair enough. I'm so far on from that song now that I don't feel the same emotion I used to when I wrote it. So I actually quite enjoyed uh, just the music of it and, and the way I sing it. Um, so there was a time where I'd be like, no, I'm not playing that song. That's horrible. But now you can look at it and say, look how far I've come and I'm no longer in that space, right? Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think my music definitely does become a journal for me to look back on and go, well, this is what I was feeling. And, and often the last track for New Old Stock was I Want You. And there's quite a few lines in there that really conflict with my opinion on how we should treat people and the sorts of language you should use around sexuality and um, just intimacy and things like that. The song is basically about masturbating. Um, And what the song is saying (laughs) is, I fancy you. I know you don't like you don't fancy me back. So I could just masturbate over the idea of you instead. I don't need your body. God gave me hands I don't need you to move me I 
just need to dance. I don't need to marry. I don't need the chance. I don't need to love you, but you got me in a trance. And I want it. Yeah, I want it. So bad. I don't need to feel your touch with my imagination. I don't need to care so much like your intoxication. I was, right. a punk, I was a punk rocker when I wrote that, and that was the sorts of songs <laughs> that you'd sing and write about, right? So just like now when I listen back to it, I'm like, that's gross. But then my audience picked it. I'm getting my audience to pick all of the songs this year. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to refuse to play it. I'm going to sing it. But there's a part in the film which I'm going to insist goes in where I'm like, by the way, this is how I feel about those sorts of songs looking back now, where I'm like, that's kind of gross. And I, I think it's fun, but it's like, yeah, ultimately it could just be weird if it's taken the wrong way. Well, we all do it. Yeah. Man. Everybody, everybody masturbates. So. Yeah, exactly. It's a healthy thing to do. It's a good, like natural part of your, your health cycle, you know, masturbate once a day and it will keep the doctor away. Do you think it, you all will ever have to go back into a lockdown? Oh, I really hope not, um, because I don't think the thing is there's not enough care in this country um, to put people in lockdown and just leave them and go. Oh, you're right. One thing I noticed with a lot of Americans that I speak to um, is they've gone through therapy at one point in their life or another for one thing in, or another. And I think that's actually a good thing. Um, because there's going to be points in your life as your life changes where you need to talk to someone, you need to figure out what's going on, you need to find some way of explaining stuff to yourself. In the UK, we don't tend to do that. There's mental health has been so stigmatised that nearly no one you talk to has been through therapy, yet they're dealing with complex PTSD and BPD. And it's it's a huge widespread epidemic in this country at the moment. Why? What's, what's the deal with that? Why is there such um, a stigma? Ch- uh, the stigma? I don't know. I think it's because we have, you know, this throwback mentality of kind of stiff upper lip. So, you know, um, keep on smiling, act like nothing's wrong, um, you know, don't let them see you, see you bleed. And I think it probably comes from being an empire where you, you know, there's this great political image of being the best and being so strong and that feeding down in the social sphere to the citizens who kind of like, especially right. the elite citizens going, oh, he was so strong. And one thing right. we notice in the 1920s and 1930s where you started to get this idea of class system, so middle class and working class started to become more prominent because of industrialization. The middle classes and the working classes would start to imitate the upper classes. So, for instance, the way I'm sitting right now with my legs crossed, I'm sitting right now with my legs crossed like this. That's actually not a human way to sit. That's not a natural way to sit. And that actually got fed down through the 1920s and 30s from these propaganda films that were shared amongst the elite. And like, this is how you sit. This is how a proper person sits. Yeah, and I'm a working class man from Milton Keynes, you know, like I shouldn't be sitting like this. This is this doesn't say anything about me, yet this is how I've learned to sit. And I think there's there's a lot to be said in that. I think the way that um, you know, the the higher echelons of society and the, the big picture of society can affect the small detail quite a lot. Um yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I've rambled enough on that answer there. No, no, I, I, <laughs> no, let's, I want to keep going. So you had mentioned something about an extension uh, like uh, of America. <laughs> I, Can you I elaborate had, on that? I had 
kind of in my usual unqualified way stated that the UK more or less seems to be um, an external state of the United States because of the way that since we've left the uh, European Union... Um, Brexit, yes. Brexit! <laughs> yeah. We now have... <laughs> this weird relationship with America where our trade agreements very much rely on them. You know, um, they have so many companies invested here now. In that time, what people didn't really notice was how many companies were being bought up by America. And it's been, uh, by American firms at least, it's been happening for a long time. Um, (coughs) One of the companies I worked for was was an Israeli uh, security company and what they did was they built security units for people's houses like motion sensors and you know trips for doors and things like that and this is a, a company that was bought out by Tyco Toys it was actually Tyco of America um, okay. but obviously the parent company of Tyco Toys um, and apparently they have a huge military and security division as well so although Tyco makes toys for your kids <laughs> they also make bombs <laughs> to blow people up uh, yep. so so yeah, it, it yeah it seems to be at this point America has such a vast influence in this country in terms of politics and regulation, and also in terms of media that the UK instead of being the empire it once was is now a subsidiary of the United States of America, and maybe that's not a, a bad thing. Maybe that's not um, you know maybe that is just what it is that as the uh, balance of power has shifted over the last century towards China and Russia and America. The UK has had to take a back seat and find a parent, you know. And I think <laughs> it's quite ironic that the UK was the parent to the United States, and you had all the conflict with the with the Civil War and uh, not of the course. Civil War, the the War of Independence, you know. Um, and then, of course, yeah. now we're in the opposite. Revolution. We're in the opposites uh, almost, where we're kind of going, all right, we really look to America for guidance and for, the, for political leadership. And you should see it. We get more worked up in this country about the American elections than we do about the UK elections. We're, really? Yeah, there's so many people that are completely apathetic to the UK elections, but when the US elections come around, it's all they can talk about. Uh, so it's like, what is wrong with you people? That literally has no effect on your life. You literally, you can write a letter to your MP and have public, like access to public discourse, whereas you're talking about something that's happening like tens of thousands of miles away that you have no impact in, and that's interesting. So, wow. But, yeah, and that's what I mean when I say that. It's There's, there's certain aspects of life here in the UK that are almost reliant on our relationship with America, and thus that makes me feel like we're we're kind of in an american state just a bit further away yeah and how long have you felt like that's been the case in terms of the media since i was a kid i used to watch more american media growing up than i did uk media the only uk media we watched is sort of the stuff my parents would watch and i used to find it kind of boring i used to watch a lot of like uh, american cartoons american comedies and things like that um, and then when I really started noticing it in terms of, let's say, politics, um, was probably around the time that Theresa May got into uh, leadership here. And it's just kind of like seeing Donald Trump walking, holding a hand that really <laughs> it kind of shone, shone a light. It really shone a light on it where you're going to go, oh, right. And she's letting him get away with that. Right. Okay then that's where we're yeah. at. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, we're reliant on them, you know, reliant on you guys. And it, I don't ever want it to be an us and them thing because I think really we're a global community. It's just a shame that the, there's so many 
political superpowers that are vying for globalization their way that it's it's kind of a scary gray area to be in at the moment as we're making the shift from industrial nationalism towards full like globalization yeah absolutely what do you all think of biden i can't actually speak for anyone here because no one's really voiced their opinions to me about biden from my point of view he seems like a fumbling old man and that's (laughs) that's a shame you know because I don't know how much of that's the media and how much he is just a patsy for whatever administration's behind him. Um, But you see the same thing with Boris Johnson here. Um, Really, on the surface, when you look at him in isolation, he's a bit of a bumbling maniac. Um, But what he's able to do behind the scenes and the administration he's got working behind him, that's what's truly evil. So I actually don't know anything about the Biden administration and no one in the UK has voiced anything to me about it. No one's gone... Biden's an improvement on Trump. You know, people seem apathetic to to talk about it. I think people here were very, very pleased to see Trump go. Um, no, they were pleased. Okay, yeah. that's where. Okay, yes, absolutely. Right, well. Yeah, because the messaging we got over here started off being like much like they do with any political leader. They go, "Aren't they fun? Aren't, don't they like relate to you? Like, look, pull your heartstrings a bit." Um, and then it changed. Um, can't even think where i think really it started to like kind of get on the fence around the make america great again campaigns sort of the original Mm -hmm. ones just leading up to the presidency and that's when he got on the fence uh the the british media but then shortly after that when he started to say wacky stuff and like get on twitter too much then the british media was a bit like you should think this guy's just an idiot um and i think a lot of people here kind of bought into that and just went yeah okay he's an idiot where I don't think he's an idiot. I think he's a very uh, terrifying and powerful man. Um, but yeah, it, without his administration, um, he's nothing, basically. Uh, it's an interesting thing to note is that actually, before he became the president, he'd been sacked from all of his jobs. He'd lost all of his investment capital. Um, and he basically, he'd gone to The Apprentice or something on, can we do another series? He's been gone, bankrupt. No. <laughs> he, was, he filed for bankruptcy four times. Yeah, and so it's kind of like, he's not the successful man that he, uh, at least the American media were painting him out well, to be. everybody likes the comeback story, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it, that's the thing with the media now, right? It's all about stories, whereas like there's very little like, this is actually the fact so that you can decide how to feel. It's like, let's paint a picture so that there's only one way really you can feel about this, one extreme or the other. Correct. Uh, what are your personal political views? I came across something interesting that oh, maybe yeah. you'd like to share. Go on. Well, it says, what are your political views? And you have Laozi's Taoism and... Do you remember putting that? Yeah, Laozi's Taoism and uh, what is it? It's Diogenes Cynicism. Yes. So that's, yeah, that kind of like, that is definitely my philosophical standpoint, but my political standpoint very much springs from that. So Laozi's Taoism is the book Tao Te Ching, and it's 81 poems that talk about uh, different perspectives on the world and this uh, congruent theme, which is Tao. And Tao just translates to Chinese in way. So Tao Te Ching actually means scripture of the way. It's a book describing what the what the uh, the universal power is. So basically what ties all this together, what's in control, what's uh, all these questions we might have when we can't answer them, we go, well, that's just Tao, mate. You know, so right. 
Um, so in reading that, that kind of helped me find a more naturalist perspective on the world. You know, no one is in control. You can get the most powerful government in the world and a tsunami can come in and wipe them out. They ain't in control, are they? You know, they're only in control of so much. So when it's um, when it comes to that, that naturalist perspective has to come into my political views. So um, you have to, you know, accept that the best form of control is a more devolved, dissolved public ownership type of control you can't have these globalist ideas where everything's run on one singular system or where it's all very nuanced and departmentalized because then you go no because then all those people have to talk to each other the only way it's going to work is confederalized where you've got these small like i live on like a housing estate and the government is there the government is in an office that you can go and talk to. So it's naturalist. It's like, it's talking about sort of like what would actually naturally work rather than let's set a dream, set a vision and go, all right, we have to force ourselves to get there, which is a lot of where the capitalist and communist things tends to find me. It's like wishing for something that can't really happen. Um, you know, I definitely think there's more on the communist side for me personally, because I'm a bit of an anarchist and it's kind of like, well, then, you know, everyone should be treated the same because I don't want someone to just feel obliged to come and stab me in the face a few times. You know, it's re it would be a really bad way to live. So there has to be some sort of inherent legislation law to live. Right. By. But if you're an anarchist, then there's total chaos. <laughs> That's what you think. But actually what you find is when people live in anarchist communities, they don't live in chaos. They naturally organize. So they do things that people would do on a natural daily basis. They're, well, no one's running they, around on fire going, oh, no, I'm nah, an anarchist. Well, no, no, no. But maybe <laughs> Lord I'm sorry, of, I don't mean to take the place. No, 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 you're you're good. Lord of the Flies is what I like. I yes. think there's just, when I say chaos, there is there is organization, but it's more just like tribal. Uh, and I, I do think what we're dealing with now is almost organized chaos. And that sort of yes. thing. I think you have to accept that the universe has almost equal portions chaos and order and i think that might just be the way we as humans perceive it but ultimately you know yeah i think when we look at the current political system it's already trying to order chaos and what i think it's trying to do is trying to do it on too large a scale and trying to fit it into too neat an image and what we see looking back at history is that everything tends to be in the framework of economies and conflicts so basically trade, money, and who was fighting who and over what. Whereas actually, when you go back and you look at the allegorical histories, when you go back and you look at the qualitative data, what you find is society has always been more flexible than that. There's been multiple different, you know, communist-themed governments in this part of the world right next to other capitalist-themed societies right here, and they've got on just fine. It's not a big war. It's not a big battle. You know, It's like if your area wants to be communist and you will work well that way, do it. And if the next street over work really well under a communist uh, capitalist system, then that's cool. Where I think the problem lies is when one tries to get dominance over the other and goes, no, this is the way to live. Right. A concern of mine, and tell me what your thoughts are. My biggest fear is that it becomes more Orwellian, like 1984. Yeah, big, that's big my biggest fear. Yeah. That really, I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that. I'm already seeing that a lot here in the UK, um, especially when they brought in the coronavirus bill last year. Um, and there was a lot of things in there they didn't need to put in. And it was clearly the security services here had seen a checkbox in front of them, which was make my life easier or no thanks. 
And they went, all right, well, we'll tick that box. And a lot of things got passed through that legislation. And that's one of my biggest fears as well, because I'm a naturalist. So I feel like, you know, we are naturally ordering. We shouldn't need to be contained and surveilled and controlled in order to just go about our lives, be happy. There will always be those people that want to exploit other people, that want to manipulate, want to, uh, you know, take advantage and, and do negative things to people. But you don't set up a rule you know, thinking no one's going to break that. You know, you set up a rule kind of going, there's going to be some people that are going to break that. So with that in mind, you set up a society that willingly shines a light on negative behavior and on toxic behavior without stigmatizing it. You know, so um, we're getting really deep and dark, but um, paedophilia, for instance, in the Mm -hmm. UK now, they've taken a stance where they go, all right, well, we'll put you on a list and we'll keep you away from everyone. But the first thing we do is hospital treatment. There you go. Let's actually talk to you and figure out what's wrong with you and why you've gotten here. And that's such a step forward to me in a naturalist system because you've got to go, this person's obviously got there for a reason. Just by going, you're evil and sticking them in a box, that doesn't solve the issue and it doesn't stop it from proliferating. We don't understand anything from that. We don't learn anything from it. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. I I must share that I did not know that you all were, that's how you thought of mental health, that you we're very it's really advanced here now it's it's it's, terrible (laughs) uh, yeah it's gotten to the point here now where the systems are developing the treatments available are developing but the the budget isn't really there it seems like the last eight years of government they've been trying to dismantle the nhs by any means necessary and what they tend to do is sell off a gp surgery here sell off a, a private clinic here um so sorry, just basically make everything into these private clinics um, and diminishing what services the NHS can provide. Um, And I think by doing that, what they're doing is slowly diminishing the NHS so that they can get us more into subscriber healthcare like you have over there in the United States. Um, But what that's causing is there's all this like kind of movement within the services to kind of go, yeah, we understand it now. We want to help people. We want to stop stigmatizing it. But they're setting up the services so that they're underfunded, so that people are underqualified for running them, that they're not advertised properly to the right people, and the stigma isn't removed. So the people that are looking to access the service are going, yeah, but I don't want to because people will think I'm crazy. You know, poor people. You know? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, that being said, I, I had an episode where I talked to a therapist here out of Denver, Dr. Vallejos, I'm not pronouncing her name right, Vallejos, Lisa, Dr. V as I call her, but we discuss the systems are broken in all Western society. Community is what's most important. And if you don't have that sense of community, then everybody's going to say, just kind of shove you off, right? Because here you, you all have United Healthcare, quote unquote, yeah, but for the time being, for the time yeah. being, but it's still there. It does still function. But that that being said, for instance, my mom passing away, I've spent thousands of dollars. Yeah, because the system is broken here in the U.S., where most therapists will not take your insurance. Oh, and so if they submitted to the insurance company, they're only going to get a fraction of what you actually paid. Oh, hey, and yeah. So it's this vicious cycle that we have to figure out. And I uh, asked her if there was a model 
country and there really isn't one no no and that's the thing you know the the model countries are going to be the ones that are you know less developed into this sort of late stage capitalism because what we're actually facing and this is what i find fascinating is that we'll stigmatize all of the consequences of but we won't talk about the causes of so this is a western disease this is uh what's called the human crisis and it's something that affects more or less anyone that's uh, undergoing this level of overpopulation, you know, stress due to uh, being overworked and underpaid, you know, being forced to go to war or having to adjust to the idea of war. And it is, I'd honestly recommend looking up the speech, the human crisis, because it'll explain it way better than I can. Um, and that's what we're dealing with. It's a Western disease and it's, it's come from the developed West going, yeah, we can control the world and really, we can't. No one is in control. <laughs> like the the only things that are in control, we have to call Dow because literally, you know, the, there's a difference between the seen and the unseen, the, the named and the unnamed. You know, that there are certain things that we can talk about and we can see and we can experience, but there's all this other stuff that we just can't. So if there's all that stuff we can't see and we can't make sense of, then there's no hope of controlling it, is there? And I think definitely <laughs> with where we, what we're seeing in the West is people having to work 45, 50 hours a week consistently, and that's everybody now, not just like those sacrificial dads, but everybody. Um, right. And no one's actually seen any ben- benefit anymore. People are like out of pocket halfway through the month still. So yeah, I don't think it will stand for long. You no, don't. I, I, I think it will either go one way or the other. It will go more towards what you're saying about a 1984 dystopian Orwellian society, or there will be massive civil uprising, there'll be another communist revolution, and then so they'll be forced to legislate more towards like collectivist ideals again. Those ideals will have to come back into the political spectrum, or really will. Like I say, I think it will become more uh, politically controlling and it will become more Orwellian. And that scares me so much. Yes, very much. Very I've much. already said I'll move into the woods or I'll move up a mountain when that happens. And I've already had friends over the last eight years move to mountains and you know, actually start building their own houses and things like that. Because Pre- Preppers. Yeah, basically, yeah. And not necessarily your extreme preppers either, just uh, more, we call them precariats here. People will just go... What do you call them again? Say that again? uh, Precariat. So it's kind of like... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Precarious, uh, proletariat, (laughs) precariat. And it's kind of those people that have chosen to live on the edge of society still because they have to. It's everywhere, you can't escape it, but do it in their own way and in a more, for lack of a better word, exploitative way so that they can actually just live happy and fulfilled lives without going, oh, I have to work every day, I have to worry about a mortgage, I have to worry about what my mum thinks about me. You go, you just yes, go no, absolutely. live off a mountain, I'm totally happy, I'm totally sound. And go off the grid. Yeah, it was Nina and Paul that went and did that, really good friends of mine, I'm so jealous of them. Like, yeah, absolutely. When was the last time you heard from them? Uh, not that long ago. Nina's still on Facebook and she still messages me. And that's the thing. It's like more of a precariat thing rather than like <laughs> yeah, okay. fully opting out. It's like Comple- they- completely off the grid. They- okay. <laughs> they built out. <laughs> They built a house <laughs> up a mountain, but like have completely wired up for electricity, got plumbing, you know, got Wi-Fi. They're happy, man. Um, but they don't have to worry about basically paying any tax. They don't have to worry about doing any of these things. They just like pay for the services that they actually use. You know, so you know, I think that's an amazing lifestyle to live. Right. Wow. The last thing I wanted to ask you is: give me your top five English bands. Oh. 
Right, so the, the Who's got to be first. They literally jumped into my head straight away. And the Who, because they were the first band to listen to, were like, wow, these are cool. Um, yeah. So it's Jam after that. Uh, the Beatles. Um, and we go for bands. Uh, I'll stick with bands just because it would be... Oh, well, you, uh, we can do, you can do artists. doesn't matter. Small, what, how, s- small faces. But, okay, um, yeah. and, and you might notice a theme here. They're all sort of like pre-90s. Um, but then also like, oh, I'm going to say the Arctic Monkeys um, because they are wild. They are really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and oh, I should have said the Gorillas as well. But how about you? What, what are your top five US bands? Who should I check out? US bands, it varies. I, I like all types of genres of music. So I was like harping on your stuff because Led Zeppelin was like so seminal for me as a boy. Nice. Rolling Stones, of course. Yeah. Um, and then I think I, I talk. I talk about this. What's so fascinating to me is that all the English bands caught on to the blues. Yeah. Here, like the artists Wilson Pickett, Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson. They all started emulating that music before Amer- American bands, and that's embarrassing to me. It kind of, it kind of follows um, the commercial structure of things because actually within the space of about 30 or 40 years here in um, the UK, what was pop changed so much so quickly because you start in the 1920s with like kind of swing and slow crooning being like the big pop thing you know the likes of Vera Lynn for instance but then there's also many many others people like Bing Crosby uh, to give you another example yeah. sort of like okay. they love that in the UK but then leading into the 40s and the 50s then you started to have more dance influences and stuff and feeding over from America and American media, you know, those sorts of like d- dancey versions, jazz, um, but then also started to lead into more blues and rock and roll. And that's why in the 50s and the 60s, you see more blues and rock and roll is because we started to get televisions, we started to get radios. And so yeah. that American influence was like zap. And so those records started to sell here way quicker than anything that was being made in the UK still, which was still jazz and, you know, old croony music like Vera Lynn. Um, and by yeah. the way, I love Vera Lynn. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's funny to see that very rapid transition of what was happening in the UK. And you didn't really get UK music, Britpop and British style rock until the 60s, I reckon. Uh, maybe some examples in the late 50s, but then you start getting bands like The Small Faces coming out in the early 60s. You go, that's British. That's so British. You can't you can't say it's really fierce. But it's still got that kind of transatlantic influence in it as well. Because I'm thinking of the song The Universal by The Small Faces, one of my favourite songs. And that's very much like, you know, uh, uh, Muddy Waters Blues. Swampy Blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, for me, Ziggy Stardust, like I love David Bowie, dude. Absolutely. Uh, Big inspiration of mine. Love David Bowie and Pink Floyd, of course. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Love Pink Floyd. So it's that's the good thing the uk like the clash i love the clash the clash are great uh, one of my favorites absolutely i'm gutted i didn't see the clash in my top five now oh uh, no, no worries definitely in the top I, 10. I, I, yeah i won't hold it against you <laughs> well listen bill i can't thank you enough 
for joining me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. I feel like I could talk to you for like eight hours. Yeah, man. It's been a great day. It feels like we've been chatting all day, but I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great experience. And uh, yeah. thank you for having me. And I look forward to hopefully chatting to you again soon. Maybe, hopefully. Yes, absolutely. When we start and recording the hour in July or something. Yeah. And hopefully uh, next year, maybe you can make it for South by. I really, really want to. So if I've got the money there, I will. And if even if I have to raise the money by, by hook or crook, I'll try and be there because that would be great if I get out of the country next year. I've been UK bound for too long now. Yeah, you got to get out. <laughs> traveling traveling soothes the soul. I'm seriously, when, when you get out and, and you see new things and interact with people, it really, it's, it's, you can't beat it. It makes all the difference. Who's trying to call me? That's my mum. My mum's trying oh, to call your me. Mom. It's me, mum. Yeah. <laughs> it's you, mum. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Please take the opportunity to listen to Bill's entire catalog on Bandcamp and Spotify titled New Old Stock. And while you're online, please like and subscribe to Neurons to Nirvana podcast. We have a great set of listeners and an exciting showcase of diverse guests in the upcoming weeks. I'm grateful for every listener out there along the way. And until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Nirvana.